Welcome to Securing America with me, Frank Afney, the program that's a kind of owner's manual for protecting the country we love against all enemies, foreign and domestic, to the glory of God and his kingdom. We're going to talk with one of my dearest friends, most admired colleagues, a man of enormous expertise and insight in a part of the battle space that, frankly, I don't know a whole lot about, but I know is vital to the success of our efforts to save our country, and that would be the financial sector. Uh, his name is Art Alley, and I'm going to give him a bit more introduction in a moment. But just to set up this conversation, we'll do the Gaffney Brief. What we're looking at, ladies and gentlemen, is a moment in our nation's history when there are, well, tectonic shifts taking place in the financial sector. I may not be a Wall Street maven by any means, but I can tell you that's a big deal. Whether it is the idea that your pension funds, your mutual funds, your exchange traded or index funds or some other investment vehicle are being used to finance our mortal enemy, the Chinese Communist Party, almost certainly to your detriment um, financially, but certainly strategically, is a scandal. And we'll be talking to Art about the importance of fixing that particular problem. We're also going to talk about a project that has been brought to the fore nationwide now by a mutual friend of Art's and mine, a man who has been on this program on any number of occasions, Kevin Freeman, the host of Economic War Room with Kevin Freeman. And we're going to talk a little bit about his initiative aimed at enabling people like us to have our investments in gold, but use them transactionally uh, in a mechanism that's uh, very easily achievable, but uh, we need some help and we'll look to you for that help to make it happen. But to do all of that and to understand both the stakes as well as the way forward, it is a privilege to be able to say Art Alley is in the house virtually. He is the founder and president of a wonderful financial entity. It's called the Timothy Plan. He's done it for, I think, three decades or so. He has been very successful with it, and he has been providing an invaluable service uh, to his clients, and I think to the country, by making the Timothy Plan a values-based financial uh, opportunity available to the rest of us. Um, Art is also a leading force in an organization that I'm proud to be a member of, uh, the Council for National Policy. And um, we get together three times or so a year with Art, and it's always uh, a treat, as are these conversations. And Art, thank you so much for taking some time to be with us today and for all that you do with the Timothy Plan and more. God bless you. Buddy, it is my honor. I only wish I would have recorded some of those nice things you said. I hope I don't mess it up. <laughs> Well, fortunately, we have recorded it. Um, listen, Art, I, to get started, talk just a little bit about the Timothy Plan, because I, I think this is uh, this is an answer to prayer for a lot of Americans, and they may not be aware that the prayers are being answered and how they can take advantage of us. Um, give us the background for the plan and, and the values that uh, it advances. Sure, Frank. Uh, you know, you mentioned three decades, and that is true. Uh, we are celebrating our 30th year. And when we launched this, it was kind of an experiment. You know, it, uh, I'd been in this business for 18 years by the time we, we stepped up and, and actually launched the Timothy Plan. And I was very active in the pro-life movement and battling pornography and all that other garbage that's destroying our culture. And it took that long for me to figure out, you know what? I'm helping clients invest their money in companies that are promoting funding or, or otherwise involved in those kinds of, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, on unholy agenda items. So, you know, we, we drew a line in the sand. It, pardon? Okay. Yeah, absolutely, man. Uh, so we drew a line in the sand and you said, you know what? People of, of biblical faith, you know, faith can mean anything today, just like Republican can mean anything and Christian can mean anything. But people of biblical faith need a safe place they can invest the, the money God's entrusted to them, knowing 
They will not be owning shares of companies that are trying to destroy us. Uh, so we drew that line in the sand and you know what? Uh, nobody, nobody was paying attention in the beginning. Uh, and I'm pleased to say that there is a great awakening happening. We're seeing it. People are becoming more and more aware of uh, everything that's going on, you know, and a couple of uh, early examples are, you know, Anheuser-Busch. You know, how stupid were they to offend their base, their client base? And I only wish I drank Bud Light so I could stop drinking it. But, uh, you know, the people are, are uh, it's cost them billions. Target. Target, I mean, how stupid they were with this transgender and all the other stuff. They're falling into the ESG trap and mothers are voting with their feet. But Frank, something they may not realize, they may not be shopping at Target. But as you mentioned earlier, if they look at where their money's invested, whether they're doing it directly or their retirement plan, they probably own Target stock, which makes no sense. Uh, you know, and I am pleased to say, you know, our research people find out what these companies are doing and we do not manage the money here, Frank. If we did, I couldn't, I couldn't recommend anybody invest with us. We have top tier money management firms that manage our portfolios, our various funds subject to the screening research we do, which tells them what they cannot own. We don't care how good they look economically. Right. And when, so when we launched this, give you, you know, my friends on Wall Street. I, sorry, I just I'm wanted to, to, to. Go ahead. No, no, no. But th this is important background because among the companies that Americans are investing in, mostly, I believe, unbeknownst to the investors, um, by entrusting their money to money managers who don't have the Timothy plans, you know, value screen in place, uh, are companies that are traded on our capital markets. Some of them are listed there and, and are, as you know, some of them are so-called A shares that aren't listed there, but then nonetheless get bundled in and exchanged by companies that are. And, these are Chinese Communist Party, effectively, if not actually owned and operated entities. Some of them work directly for the People's Liberation Army. And I, I just I've just got to believe that if the American people who, as you say, are having an awakening, understood this is what's being done with their money by these faceless, you know, money managers on Wall Street, mostly, um, they would be horrified. They'd want no part of it. Uh, do you think that's right? And how serious a problem is it that we're investing in the CCP, do you think? Uh, there, again, there's somewhat of an awakening. You know, we struggled with this, uh, uh, Frank. We told our managers, if companies in China are, are government-owned, don't touch them. But then we came to the conclusion, it doesn't matter in China. The government may not own them, but they control them and they dictate. So we don't own any Chinese companies in the Timothy plan, period. And at sometimes, you know, that may uh, affect us a little bit. But, you know, we have the same problem in America. It is a one world problem. Uh, it's all working together, pushing everything toward socialism, communism. You know, and one of the biggest financial concerns, a couple of the biggest financial concerns in the industry are BlackRock and Vanguard. Right. And they are the hold, ones hold that thought. ESG agenda. Yeah. Yeah. Art, uh, hold just a second. Yeah. We have to take a break. When we come back, I want to drill down on this ESG agenda and what BlackRock and these other okay. entities following its lead are doing to the industry and to our investors. That and more with Art Alley. Stay tuned. Yes, sir.
This is Frank Affney with the Secure Freedom Minute. Americans are clearly awakening to the fact that President Joe Biden is violating the law and betraying his oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. And Texas Governor Greg Abbott has just formally confirmed that's the case. In an extraordinary statement issued yesterday, the governor decried the president's failure to fulfill his constitutional responsibility to protect the states against invasion. And he affirmed the state's sovereign interest in protecting their borders. On these bases, the Texas governor is now directly challenging not only President Biden, but the U.S. Supreme Court, which ruled earlier this week that the states cannot defend their international borders, even when the federal government refuses to do so. Congress has, for far too long, been an enabler of this open border travesty. Now it must support Governor Abbott and secure the border once and for all. This is Frank Gaffney. We're back. We are visiting with the president and founder of the great Timothy Plan. If you are investing, I strongly recommend that you take a look at this plan because in all likelihood, it better reflects your values and is more likely to assure that your investments will be aligned with those values than if you just turn it over to people like oh, Larry Fink, of BlackRock and his counterparts at uh, Vanguard and State Street and the like. And uh, Art, I I just, you opened the door to this conversation. Um, I I guess let's start with the agenda of Larry Fink um, with respect to ESG and, and well, for that matter, the Chinese Communist Party as well. And why nobody in their right mind, no patriotic American at least, should want him having anything to do with their pension funds or or other savings and investments, right? You bet. It's it's actually boils down to one of the most uncommon things in our culture today, and that's common sense. Uh, BlackRock, Vanguard, for their own reasons, are absolutely foisting this ESG agenda on corporate America. These two firms are so large. BlackRock is managing over $10 trillion. And what that means is they own sizable shares of stock of these publicly traded companies, which means they have influence over these companies. And they are ignoring to a large degree the traditional, you know, how much profit are you making and are you over leveraged and, you know, you're running a good ship. And they're focusing on the ESG score, environmental, social, and governance. And like all the socialistic, uh, communistic uh, folks, they make it sound good. But when you find out what it really is, it is not good. It is uh, absolutely promoting a very liberal, uh, socialistic, communistic agenda. And they're foisting it on corporate America. Now, when corporate America, if they want access to capital, they have, they have to fall in line with this. And, uh, you know, the, it, it's really uh, become a very big problem in America today. Art, let me ask you, uh, one of the expressions that is applied to the transformation that uh, BlackRock has been engineering in all of this is um, abandoning shareholder capitalism in favor of something called stakeholder capitalism. Stakeholder. How, how does that relate to this point you've just made that uh, if you're an investor, this is not going to be good for you, is it? No, 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 it's not going to be good for you. It's not good for the corporation. When I, when I entered this industry 45 years ago, Frank, you looked at companies, made sure they were profitable, well run, uh, you know, uh, operating efficiently, which is good for a shareholder. If, if a company's making money, you're going to make money. These ESG uh, uh, burdens on American corporations are anti-profit. Uh, it costs you money to be to get a good ESG score. You're not operating efficiently. And the interesting thing I know that would interest you, Frank is the same 
humongous uh, financial uh, institutions own a ton of Chinese companies and they do not place the same burden on Chinese companies that they place on American companies. Uh, so they are really absolutely lined up and promoting uh, not just a, an unholy agenda, but an un-American agenda. And it operates opposite to the interests of the shareholders, which, you know, you, you buy a stock and you want it to do well. Um, you know, and I can give you a quick example. They own so many shares of Exxon that they put three members of the, the um, green team on their board. And they were able to do that, which is totally anti, you know, that's an energy company. And they're trying to shift them away from their main line. Into It's crazy what's going on, but you don't have to own shares of these companies. Yeah, great. green team is a very charitable way to describe what are basically environmental zealots who are intent on essentially destroying the business model of Exxon. Uh, which is not going to be good for yes. uh, those shareholders, after all. Um, let me turn quickly to one last topic with you, Art. And uh, uh, again, I'm so grateful to you for your insights on all of this. Um, a friend and colleague of ours, as I mentioned, Kevin Freeman, has been working in your native state of Florida, among other places, including his of Texas, to um, elevate an idea about how we can have uh, what's called transactional a gold and silver currency um, issued by the states. Um, walk us through that quickly, if you would, um, just the mechanics of it, uh, the constitutionality of it, sure. if you would, but also, you know, is this a good idea from an investing point of view, do you think? Man, uh, uh, you know, it is not an investing point of view that, that we're really working with. It is the greatest threat to our individual freedom and liberty that we have faced in uh, my lifetime, which is getting to be pretty extensive, Frank. Uh, but, you know, what, what's at stake here is this whole move toward worldwide, not just America, central bank digital currency, which means no more paper money. I hope your listeners and viewers are listening to this. No more paper money you will be issued a debit card and you'll have your money on deposit at one of these humongous central banks and they will control how you use the money you have on deposit. If, if they don't want you going more than five miles from home, your debit card won't work more than five miles from home. You know, if you're using too much gasoline this month, your debit card won't allow you to buy anymore. They will control your money. And what I like about Kevin Freedom is, uh, Freeman is that he uh, has, you know, he's, he is probably the premier expert in this, in our nation. Uh, and he has found that constitutionally states, although they cannot issue national uh, currency, they have the constitutional right to issue gold and silver coinage, which means that any state can have a vault and be a, a, in competition with or an alternative to this central bank digital currency because they won't control. You can deposit money in that vault and it is yours. You have a debit card, just like central bank digital currency. You go and buy a cup of coffee. It'll, it'll just take a, whatever the market price of the gold that you own, it will take a couple of grams of that. The, the, the vendor doesn't know the difference. He just honors your credit card. But the money is yours and gold and silver bullion have always been a store of value. And what I like about Kevin, as you know, he's been working with Texas. I said, well, how about Florida? So we, Timothy Plan, nothing to do with our investment program, everything to do with preserving our freedom to operate. Uh, we actually sponsored a dinner at the Governor's Club in Tallahassee for 40 of our Florida legislators, invited Kevin down. He laid out the whole program, and I'm proud to say that that resulted in some legislation being drafted and, uh, you know, I'd like to see Florida be the first state in the nation to offer this. And not just Floridians, anybody can do this. 
And you will then control how you spend the money you think is yours. If we don't do this, the money is not yours. The government owns it. And uh, I mean, that's that's the core of communism and socialism. Yeah. Uh, you will own nothing. Yeah. yeah. And you'll be happy, as they say in uh, Davos. And, and and just very quickly. Oh, yeah, to wrap yeah. Up, By uh, 2030, you'll own nothing and be happy. Yeah. Yeah. Just just to wrap this up, Art, I, I think it's it's fair to say that um, you will not only not own your money, um, you will be owned by the government as a practical matter. We must not let Amen. that happen. Your your leadership on this, as well yeah, as, of absolutely. course, Kevin Freeman's is so appreciated. Art Alley uh, of the Timothy plan. I know that you will keep up the good work and I hope uh, our listeners will check out um, the value based investing that you facilitate. God bless you, my friend. Come back with updates soon. We'll be right back with more right after this. Night after night, in cities across the country, black-garbed assailants clash with police in the streets, smash windows, and throw Molotov cocktails in an effort to destroy police stations, federal courthouses, and local businesses, all in the name of anti-fascism. Most Americans are now, sadly, all too aware of the movement known as Antifa. But where did they come from? What do they want? And how do we stop their campaign of violent mayhem? The Center for Security Policy Press is proud to present Unmasking Antifa, Five Perspectives on a Growing Threat, this new book looks at the history, ideology, organization, finances, and strategy of Antifa and provides an in-depth analysis for law enforcement officers, policymakers, and the general public. From street fighting tactics of the Black Bloc to fundraising by prominent left-wing foundations, Unmasking Antifa is the go-to guide to understand this elusive and dangerous threat. Get your copy of Unmasking Antifa, Five Perspectives on a Growing Threat at Amazon.com. We're back, and it is a high privilege to say we are going to have the next three segments to speak with a dear friend and very important member of our Committee on the Present Danger China, as well as a senior fellow of our Center for Security Policy, but perhaps most importantly for the present moment, a man who uh, rocked Taiwan by posing as a journalist over there during the recent election season. It didn't pose, he acted as one, and I think actually performed rather better than the so-called professionals in the space. His name is Colonel John Mills, United States Army, retired. He has served his country not only as a special operator during the time he was in the Army, but also as a senior executive in the civil service uh, in the Pentagon, uh, the Department of Homeland Security, and the National Security Council. He's the author of two important books, The Nation Will Follow, and the brand new bestseller, War Against the Deep State. Colonel Mills, thank you so much for joining us uh, on very short notice, as is often the case, but uh, we appreciate your responding so well and, as always, so generously. Good to have you, sir. Hey, Frank, thank you. The honor is mine. Good. Let's start, uh, John. I see you're wearing uh, the jacket that I believe was given to you by uh, members of the Democratic Progressive Party in Taiwan, um, showing your true colors, I guess one might say. But uh, tell us about the election, your, your perceptions of it, what you learned uh, that uh, surprised you, uh, and of course, the importance of the outcome. Yeah, thank you, Frank. Yeah, the... Uh... The DPP, and, and some Americans might uh, hear the title Democratic Progressive Party and say, oh, I don't know about that. That doesn't sound right. I mean, we shouldn't get confused over the names of, of, of political parties in other nations. It could That's a story in itself. This is the, the, the party of Make Taiwan Great Again. It's a populist party. It's a, uh, I would say it's a conservative party. Now, some people say, well, the legacy KMT is a conservative party. Uh, absolutely not. Definitely. I mean, things have evolved. The KMT is squarely in the pocket of uh, the Chinese Communist Party. They are not to be trusted. 
the outcome of the election, it was a decisive win for populism. It was a decisive win for democracy and for Taiwan. It was a loss for China, and it was a loss for the Chinese, excuse me, the Chinese Communist Party. Um, now, one, so decisive win, 70% points uh, in the presidency. So William Lai uh, will be sworn in in May. Uh, he's, he's very clear uh, on a... Uh, I did many man-on-the-street interviews. People were baffled when I'd say, do you want Taiwan to be independent or sovereign? And they said, we already are. We don't need to ask anybody's permission for that. And I think that's a, that's a very, very key thing that we should be quite aware of. And uh, I think it, we, the, a logical next step is revisiting some form of representation in the UN. And the last time, and the only time the UN tried, or the Taiwan tried this was 2007. I'm doing some research and we'll be doing a piece shortly on that, but uh, I kind of trend toward, it looks like the Bush administration was the key group that sank that, that uh, petition to the UN. Thank you, Bush administration. Now, some might discuss that. Uh, we'll, we'll find out. But, uh, I think John, can I, can I ask that. which which Bush administration? Uh, so this was 2007, so it would have been the Bush W administration. Um, I had an interesting encounter two years in a row at a major event in a foreign country and ran into a very significant personality who I had, I had worked for uh, in the Bush administration. And at each event, they made the expression, they, they used the term, we will give Taiwan back to China. And at the time, that was really not my focus area, but I said, uh, wow, that's not law or policy, uh, good sir. That is actually a factually incorrect statement. And by the way, Taiwan is not ours to give or not give. So, and both times I had to uh, lovingly lock his heels because that just made no sense. And I'm beginning to see, realize he may have been one of the key figures that sank the uh, the uh, Taiwan petition to the UN. Thank you. So we need to revisit this. This is ridiculous. 24 million that are not represented in the UN, uh, yet we have a freak show of other groups that are represented in the UN. So we, yeah. we need to address now, John, this. John, let me ask you, because, of course, the president of the United States, immediately after William Lai's victory, profess that we don't support independence. And I, I'm with you, they are independent. I mean, that's, that's just the status quo, but his statement that we don't support it presumably makes unlikely not only, you know, UN representation, but it calls into question, doesn't it, John, the, uh, the willingness of the United States to support an independent Taiwan in practice, if it is attacked by communist China. Yeah, this was a case study in right and wrong statements. Now, I might be declared an apostate, but, but Tony Blinken actually made the factually correct statement after the election. It was a very simple, congratulations, Taiwan. And it was good, okay? Whereas Biden, I would, suggest, I would say, made a statement that was actually in orthogonal to U.S. law and policy, and just like the 2007. Taiwan is not ours to give or not give independence to. So Biden's statement was absolutely uh, wrong in terms of law and policy. Blinken made a very simple, congratulations, Taiwan, and left it at that. You know, proper statement. Not that, not we, you know, Blinken but so, also John, was the engineer of the email letter. Yeah. But John, so the, the question is, if uh, it's not ours to give or withhold independent status, but it uh, has been shown in the Biden administration that it will use leverage. Uh, we're seeing this certainly in Israel at the moment, particularly. It will use leverage, notably um, its willingness to provide arms to a friendly nation uh, to uh, withhold those arms, uh, more to the point, um, as a means of trying to pressure them to uh, do or not do certain things. So uh, would you say that that's where we are at the moment? If the president says we do not support independence, that anything that um, President Lai uh, wants in office or his party uh, seeks to do to 
you know, sort of affirm that status would be met with stiff opposition by this administration, including making it more vulnerable to attack by the Chinese Communist Party. I am hoping that this is one more example of a cognitively impaired president and a, and a staffer, because I had to deal with this so many times when I was in government, incorrect statements on law and policy in regards to Taiwan. And I can, I think there's about an 80% chance this was a youthful, exuberant, ill-informed uh, staffer who wrote that statement and did not know the, the true law and policy on on, I am hoping that is the case and not that that was nefarious malign, but it was brought up the day after the elections, the serious issues with delivery of war material because of Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan simultaneously. So Taiwan is feeling the pressure on lack of delivery. No doubt about it and is likely to feel it more. But uh, John, uh, on this question of the dis differentiation, the, the, the what I'm trying to say, uh, the uh, deviation between what the president says and what his staff is telling him to say um, has certainly been evident, as you know so well, in I think the four different occasions when President Biden very directly said, we will defend Taiwan in the event it is attacked by the Chinese. We're, we have an obligation to do that only to be countermanded on all four occasions by some nameless, faceless staffer whose youthful exuberance perhaps uh, was trotted out to say, well, no, there's been no change in U.S. policy. Uh, John, we have to take a short break, but when we come back, I want to visit with you a bit further. Excuse me, I'm, I'm early. We're not quite there. So, John, what, what do you make of uh, that sort of statement of policy by the president and, uh, and the role of the staff in disputing it? Well, we have a cognitively impaired president. I mean, he can't be, he's just not consistent. This is, uh, you know, nobody is perfect in their public statements, though. We all make misstatements, but this is important. This is important stuff. And we just can't be making misstatements like this, where uh, we're going to defend Tyron, it gets rolled back. We're, we're not going to give independence. It's no rollback of, of that comment. Uh, this is, ladies and gentlemen, this is a matter of life and death for 24 million in addition to uh, deterring, uh, hopefully stopping a world, a, a total World War III, which I would argue is already in progress. Uh, so these statements are very important. And um, we just released the, the, the first ever defense industrial policy strategy which bemoaned uh, the weakness, and they essentially cut and pasted the Trump, most of the Trump policies on this, but bemoaned the need to rapidly increase our defense policy. Well, they're in many ways the ones responsible for killing it because globalism, defense industrial base policy, depends on the private sector being able to make and manufacture things. Globalists took that away from America, and there were many willing, enabling embedders in the deep staters and the globalists that, that gave that to China. So now we, we are in a crisis, can't make things. No, it's and, and most especially can't make things that are necessary to our own defense, not just Taiwan's or Israel's or, or Ukraine's for that matter. And, and John, uh, we are going to take a short break now. And uh, when we come back, I want to make sure that one of the things that we develop a little bit further with you is uh, what are the implications for our alliances and, and for deterrence of China, given what they surely know about the condition of our defense industrial base and military more generally. We'll be right with more on all of that with Colonel John Mills, United States Army, retired right after this.
this is Frank Affney with the Secure Freedom Minute. Americans are clearly awakening to the fact that President Joe Biden is violating the law and betraying his oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. And Texas Governor Greg Abbott has just formally confirmed that's the case. In an extraordinary statement issued yesterday, the governor decried the president's failure to fulfill his constitutional responsibility to protect the states against invasion. And he affirmed the state's sovereign interest in protecting their borders. On these bases, the Texas governor is now directly challenging not only President Biden, but the U.S. Supreme Court, which ruled earlier this week that the states cannot defend their international borders, even when the federal government refuses to do so. Congress has, for far too long, been an enabler of this open border travesty. Now it must support Governor Abbott and secure the border once and for all. This is Frank Gaffney. We're back, and we're joining once again Colonel John Mills, United States Army, retired, um, an author of two important books. Uh, recently, uh, the first is known as The Nation Will Follow, and the second describes uh, some of his own personal exploits in countering uh, an enemy within he calls war with against the deep state. John, um, I want to come back to those points in a moment, but uh, first off, uh, the left inside our country has long derided what you were just describing earlier, uh, our defense industrial base, uh, as, uh, to use a term Eisenhower, I guess, uh, introduced the military-industrial complex. Uh, and I now find an awful lot of people, including good friends of ours, um, who are referring to the only defense industrial base we have in a, that same term. And um, maybe it's just me, but uh, it seems as though there's a pejorative uh, quality to it. it. Certainly was under the left, and I think it's meant that way by some of our friends on the right. Where are we with respect to... Um, this key element of our national security, John, you, you've mentioned that it, it's in need of uh, considerable upgrading, but uh, does does the castigating of people involved in it uh, advance that project? Or Well, this is absolutely actually a very excellent point, Frank, and we need to be sophisticated and realize the difference between the military-industrial complex, the deep state and forever war, and MEGA, which absolutely says we will have an absolutely overwhelming military to deter and prevent conflict and forever war. And both of these, uh, so they're, yeah, peace, they are not the same thing. And yes, I have seen this before uh, over and over again. Oh, that's just forever war. There is a difference. There is a distinct difference. President Trump was so clear about having a military so strong and so ready, there would not be forever wars, okay? And so when we cannot allow this, but now we are realizing because of the color revolution in America, because of the deindustrialization of America, because of the long-term Howard Zinism of our education system because of the social justice warrioring of our of our culture where if you're a productive person studying hard sciences for the purpose of production manufacturing that somehow is racist phobic this phobic that etc etc no this is insanity because we're not a nation unless we can build things if you can't build things, you become Greece, a nation of coffee shops and restaurants. That is not an economy. The defense industrial base 
absolutely needs and depends on a, a private sector industrial base that can actually build things. When we export our industrial base, when we export jobs, we have nothing. So this is the this is the social justice warrior approach to the education system. Everybody's going to come out of college and all they can do is either gender studies or write environmental impact statements. That is not an economy. That's not the foundation for any nation, much less a great nation. Yeah, especially a national security foundation, which is absolutely essential, especially in a dangerous time as this. Which brings me back to Taiwan and, and China. Uh, John, you had a chance from, you know, sort of a front row seat there during uh, the time you were covering the election, the run up to it and its aftermath. Um, what's your perception of how uh, Xi Jinping uh, and the Chinese Communist Party, he, uh, you know, quite uh, dictatorially runs, uh, how they're responding? to the election of William Lai? Well, this puts them in a great quandary, okay? She has to demonstrate delivery of promises, and his prime one is delivery of Taiwan. However, he is beset by enormous domestic unrest. He is engaged in an absolute frenzy of um, changing out, often by arrest and execution of generals and admirals and senior members of the party. He wants a absolute lockstep, yes man, yes womanism uh, staff that are absolutely focused on going to war. Uh, so he is under incredible duress at home. The, the stock market is falling, great economic crisis. Um, so, but at the same time, he has to deliver Taiwan because this is essentially his biggest promise uh, as part of being elected for his third term, on third unprecedented term as leader of the Chinese Communist Party. He is in an extremely tight window. He has to essentially right now execute his railway timetable of logistics uh, preparations to do the, all of the loadouts for all of the amphibious ships, all of the, private, uh, all of the private merchant vessels that they essentially will take over to aid and abet any kind of movement toward Taiwan, the Philippines, the Solomon Islands, whatever, uh, just an envelopment of Taiwan, whatever, that will be extremely visible and tangible to even, even as distracted as our intelligence community is by CRT and DEI training for them not to recognize the indicators of all of this massive movement of material to all the different ports, all the marshalling and loading operations. On this scale, this is the Normandy invasion on an incredible scale. And, uh, you know, so it's going to be incredibly obvious. And guess what? They have to have boots on the ground wherever they're going or a complete envelopment of Taiwan by essentially April because what happens in June that's when the unpredictable stormy typhoon season hits which is not insignificant it is very yeah. significant John we have to take a break here and I just want to say I, I hear you loud and clear that you think under the circumstances domestically as well as um, internationally uh, Xi is in a position where he needs to go for it in Taiwan. Um, I'd like to talk with you a little bit further on the other side of this short break about um, what that actually entails. Does it have to be a Normandy-style invasion, or could it be something less obvious, uh, certainly in the run-up, and uh, nonetheless uh, still quite decisive in taking down the Taiwanese um, democracy? Talk with John Mills of uh, the Center for Security Policy, among other outfits, uh, about that and much more. Please stay tuned.
We're back. Colonel John Mills is in the house virtually, we're always pleased to say, back from his great adventures in Taiwan during the recent election there. And we are catching up with him on uh, the insights that he gained in the course of his visit, as well as the strategic acumen that he brings to bear on so many of these issues, uh, including war and peace. And John, um, you were among the first to raise uh, to my knowledge, um, at least in the present moment, this idea that what the Chinese would do is simply um, create a blockade, uh, maybe start with attacks in actually the Philippines um, to the east of Taiwan, but uh, encircle and reduce, if you will, uh, the island rather than actually send large numbers of forces across the beach. Uh, you were also just saying off air that uh, you were actually one of the places that uh, might well be a landing point if they do decide to mount an amphibious uh, attack. And, and again, that that could happen in the next couple of months, uh, which is kind of my bet. Uh, walk us through the scenario as you see it at the moment, John, especially informed by the crisis that Xi Jinping clearly has at home and his desperation to avoid, um, you know, having the party come down around his ears. Well, yeah, thank you, Frank. Um, so I think one of the more likely scenarios is a hard envelopment uh, and essentially blockade of, of Taiwan. Now, somebody posted on LinkedIn uh, a few days before I left for Taiwan a fascinating depiction of the air tracks of the uh, there's been a for over a year a continuous envelopment of Taiwan. Uh, by high-altitude, long-endurance drones. That is strategically significant. That is a message. That is a message from, from China. We can conduct a, a continuous air blockade. These drones can be equipped with air-to-air -air and air-to-surface weapons. So this soft envelopment could turn hard real quick, like no notice. So this is extremely dangerous, and this is one reason why Taiwan at least needs to be represented in the UN and the ICAO for this absolutely baffling. I had to fly through this drone blockade, and what in the world is keeping these uh, these from bumping into, much less shooting down any aircraft coming in, coming in out of Taiwan? Very dangerous, very dangerous. So that's a grave concern, and that if if she can pull that off and then also throw in naval surface forces, that in many ways, he can say, look, I've delivered Taiwan. I haven't landed, we haven't seized the island, but we've essentially demonstrated a de facto ability to control what happens on the island. That's, I think, the more likely scenario. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, the nature of that island is it is dependent upon uh, commerce and and supplies from overseas in order to sustain its economy, its people, um, and uh, in fact, its survival as a nation. So, uh, the blockade, uh, albeit one that you know would be uh, a bit more protracted than, you know, a uh, uh, a combined arms assault. Uh, our colleague Colonel Grant Mills, uh, excuse me, Colonel Grant Newsom has been talking about now a use of missile attacks and air armadas and then ultimately, uh, uh, you know, maritime landing um, may, may be in the offing, but uh, if they can reduce the island without it, they may go that way. Especially, John, uh, another scenario I'm interested in exploring with you is one that I'm very, very concerned about. I think you share the concern. The combination of the thousands, unknown number of thousands, <coughs> excuse me, the combination of the unknown number of thousands of what appear to be Chinese military personnel who have come into this country across our open southern border on the one hand, and uh, the evidence ability that they would have once here to marry up with biological warfare laboratories that uh, we know of one that the Chinese Communist Party established in Reedley, California. We don't know if there are more, but we have reason to believe there are. Uh, talk us through that scenario as a means uh, for Xi Jinping to take his strategic arson, as I call it, one more step and further distract, further disable, further make it possible for him perhaps to win 
Taiwan uh, without fighting. You know, the, the Reedley California Biolab is absolutely uh, uh, unrestricted warfare in America. My thesis is we have at least 14 regional conflicts or flashpoints that are can instantaneously become conflict points that comprise, we are at 1938, 14 regional conflicts. The World War III is already in pro progress. Now, one of those 14 is the, the absolutely mortal danger of these Chinese paramilitaries and or special operators that are already in the United States and or uh, overseeing fentanyl production with the cartels working for them in northern Mexico. And this Reedley lab is absolutely, uh, a, a, absolutely incredibly dangerous. And the absolute absence of any concern, interest, or energy on this by the federal government is shocking. Now, Michael Waltz is one of the one of the good congressmen, and he has been one of the advocates of an authorization to use military force in northern Mexico, which will really neck off and really essentially destroy this this Chinese penetration that's coming right across our open border. Um, and that may actually be effective inside the United States, because this is, this is really not a DHS issue anymore when we have armed, trained combatants that are muscled in on legal cannabis, which is very useful. What They can skim the cash off that to fund street violence. What a deal. A self-licking ice cream cone. So um, this is crazy, and yeah, and this is this is uh, beyond the capabilities because usually it's the FBI is the lead federal agency for domestic events like this. This is beyond their capabilities, even their crisis response team at Quantico. This is this this becomes a DOD operation. Look, even if they wanted to perform the mission, they seem to be completely AWOL on it. But uh, you're right, they're being uh, wildly outgunned. John, we have to leave it at that. Uh, there's a lot more to talk about. And my principal takeaway from today's conversation is uh, we are in World War III, as you say. It may be the early stages, and um, it may not uh, uh, stay non-kinetic as far as we're concerned for very long. But John, I know you'll be helping us sort it all out. Keep up the great work, my friend, that you do, uh, not least with the War Against the Deep State, your great new book. Come back to us. I hope the rest of you will do the same next time. Until then, go forth and multiply. <laughs>